0: Hello, we begin a new series here today on Search for Truth. Bible teacher Brian Johnston will present a special set of Gospel studies with talks over the next six weeks. So, many thanks for tuning in. The Bible is God's message to us in every age of history. It's as relevant today as it was at any time since it began. God's message is so readily available today in print, by internet, audio, video and other means, and while millions may appreciate it, many millions more ignore it or dismiss its message out of hand. In the Western world, we're largely far too self-sufficient. No one needs to turn to God. But is that right thinking? Brian's called today's talk, God's Thoughts Are Not Our Thoughts. So, tell us more, Brian. Okay, John. In one way or another we're all pretty good at keeping up appearances. There may
1: be a strain in relationships within the family, but when visitors call, we're able to perform in such a way as to avoid that strain being detected. Behaving like this, or at least attempting to do so, goes all the way back, almost to the dawn of time. The Bible tells us that when our very first parents sinned by disobeying God's original command not to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, they discovered that they were naked. Their instinctive response at that time, it seems, was to make for themselves a covering for their nakedness by using fig leaves. We don't read that they were in any despair or deeply sorrowful for what they had done. Perhaps the enormity of it had not yet hit them. We're left wondering if they really thought a quick fix was possible. This is what it says in the book of Genesis. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This was the original cover-up operation. Such a flimsy attempt to repair of such a catastrophic failure. Their thinking was at the level of trying only to deal with the external appearances. An attempt to look good was the offered solution. But God's searching questions and their expulsion from the garden paradise soon made it devastatingly obvious that this human solution was hopelessly inadequate. It made no difference as far as God was concerned. Would the next generation fare any better? They would surely have been told by Adam and Eve of all that had happened leading up to when God made the first coats of animal skin for them. This would have involved sacrifice, with some animal's blood staining the still new planet. I think we can fairly assume God made this into a teaching opportunity. He surely taught our first parents the great principle that would come to run throughout the whole Bible. And what is that? Some refer to it as the red thread. Hebrews 9 and verse 22 contains the words, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. This referred to the multitude of the various prescribed Old Testament blood sacrifices. And ultimately, it was the blood of Christ that all these Old Testament offerings were pointing forward to. With each of those sacrifices, there was a passing over of sins. But when Christ died on the cross, that was when the sins of each believer on him were finally put away. Many Old Testament rituals involve blood, with sometimes things being stained or sprinkled with blood, so as to become coloured red. And all these things, in a rich variety of ways, form part of what we're styling as the red thread that runs throughout the whole Bible. Ultimately, of course, it leads us to the cross where Christ died. And we affirm that in his death alone, forgiveness can be obtained from God. Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve, couldn't fail to have had this lesson impressed upon them, I suggest. I think that's as good as confirmed by Hebrews chapter 11, in the place where Abel gets an honourable mention for his faith. It was his faith, you see, that led him to draw near to God in worship with a lamb that he'd taken from his own flocks. The Bible tells us, and it's found in Romans chapter 10, that faith invariably acts upon a word from the Lord. And in this case, I'm presuming that word came to Abel via his parents. He responded by complying with God's instruction, and he sacrificed a lamb. But Cain, his brother, was not compliant. He'd other ideas. It appears his thinking was like the thinking of a great many people who'd come after him, right down to the present time, in fact. Seemingly rejecting what he'd heard, Cain figured it ought to be enough— more than enough perhaps, to bring the fruit of his own labours to present to God. Literally, he brought crops he'd grown and these formed his offering. In a similar way, ever since, people have likewise felt they need to do something to try to make themselves acceptable to God, taking some pride possibly in the idea that they were making some contribution at least. But are they right to think like this? There's only one verdict that counts, And we read about it in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. Tragically, Cain was so angry that he murdered his brother Abel. In that way, the very first man born into this world became a murderer. Right from the very first generation, human nature, although only so recently flawed, was fully capable of serious sin. Despite this, God waited for over one and a half thousand years before giving imminent warning of global judgment on the human race. This takes us, of course, to the time of Noah. Once again, it would prove to be a case of God's thoughts not being our thoughts, in that the way of salvation God presented to the world then was ruled unacceptable. In fact, it was laughed out of court. The apostle Peter summarizes it like this in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, he said, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Those listening back then to this preacher of righteousness, to Noah that is, wrote him off as crazy. Any explanation for his actions in building a large boat must have been laughed out of hand in the same way as the preaching of the cross of Christ today is viewed as foolishness by many. But as now, so also back then it was God's wisdom through the apparent foolishness of the thing preached to bring about salvation for the many or the few who responded on God's terms. Rejecting God's way brought God's judgment upon them. They scoffed at Noah, ridiculed his building of the ark, and so were shut outside and perished in the deluge. Within another couple of chapters of the record of the Bible's first book, we've an example of another typical human behaviour. I'm referring to the incident that occurred at the Tower of Babel, when God intervened to disrupt human communications by introducing diversity into human language for the very first time why did God do this? It was because the common interest of people at that time was to try to reach God, to try to get to heaven, but in their own way. They were listening to each other, but not to God. That's similar to the goals of organised institutional religion at any time in human history. Once again, God showed the bankruptcy of this approach. Then when we come to the Bible's second book, and into the third millennia of human history, God clarifies for all humanity the standard from which it had fallen. We know of this standard famously as the Ten Commandments. But the perversity of human nature would find it irresistible not to misuse even these God given commandments. God's purpose in giving them is clearly stated in the Bible. God intended the law to be like a thermometer or a mirror. A thermometer can confirm that a patient is unwell. And a mirror can confirm that our outward appearance needs attention. But the thermometer cannot make us well, nor can the mirror beautify us. God's law, together with the inward conviction that we violated its standard, similarly only proves that we stand in need of help, help which only God, and not we ourselves, can provide. Not too many pages further on, As Israel are journeying to the promised land, we come across another trap the Bible documents that humanity is capable of falling into. It's the trap of venerating relics and icons. We find it in Numbers chapter 21 where we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Sadly, this serpent didn't remain in the place where it was set up, but it was taken with them and continued until the days of good king Hezekiah. It's then the Bible writer discloses how the people had hung on to that copper serpent as a religious relic, attributing special powers to it. Time and again, the commentary of the pages of the Bible, drawn from specific incidents down through history, witnesses to us of the futility of our own thoughts about how we might extricate ourselves from the predicament of our fall from grace and our disqualification from heaven as a result. The story is told of a lifeguard among a crowd on a riverbank. In the treacherous river currents, a man is drowning. Seeing the obvious difficulty the swimmer is in, the crowd urge the lifeguard to dive in and offer assistance. But still he stands motionless, other than keeping his eye trained upon the drowning man. The baffled crowd urge him again and again to do something, but still he remains motionless without flexing a single muscle. Now it appears it may be too late. The man in the water is barely able to keep his head above the water and his movements have now become much weaker. Suddenly, the lifeguard dives in and brings the man to the shore. The crowd, although appreciative, demand to know why he left it so late. The lifeguard replies that as long as the man in the water was desperately trying to save himself, he couldn't help him. In fact, it would have been dangerous for both of them if he'd attempted the rescue at any earlier time. The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 6, "'For while we were still helpless,' At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As with the lifeguard, God waited until the right time when we were helpless. And it's also only when we too realise that we are helpless that we can be saved from this greatest danger. Our own attempts based on misguided thinking now need to stop. This is the right time to tell God we can't help ourselves. He must do it all for us. Take hold, please, of the Bible's red thread. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ's death alone for your eternal forgiveness.
0: Thanks, Brian, for giving us the wonderful Gospel message, which is God's good news to the whole world. Now, if you have any comments or questions after listening today, do get in touch, and I'll be giving you the contact details shortly if you've pen and paper to hand. The six talks in this series, along with some more, are all available in booklet form by asking for the title, Really Good News for Today. And you can do this by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Well, I'm sorry, but that's almost the end of our programme. But you can listen to the hymn again at the end if you wish. And it's been a pleasure to enjoy your company. And as always, I'd be delighted if you could join us again next week when Brian's talk is about the new life in Jesus. So, until then, it's very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, studio technician, David, our singers, and me, John. So, bye for now, and may God richly bless you.